This is Channel 253. In this episode of Crossing Division. But there where they selected three people of color and then darkened their skin in an effort uh, to unseat Mark Lindquist, right? And so uh, that is a bizarre tactic that's been used uh, by not just um, center-right groups, but in that case, a more left-wing campaign. Yeah. It's almost like we need public financing of elections. Imagine that. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez. Today on Crossing Division, we're going to do something that we would love to always do, but we don't do a lot of, which is have a division. And that is because I am so lucky to be joined by Alex Hayes, who is a campaign consultant in Tacoma, who works with a lot of Republican candidates, and Justin Camerata in Tacoma, who is uh, the chair of our 27th Legislative District Democrats. So welcome to both of you. Yes, thanks for having us. Welcome. Sure. And so we're gonna talk about the election. 2020 coming up in less than two weeks, who's on the ballot and sort of, you know, talk about Republicans, Democrats and what's going on. So let's just jump right in and let's talk first about the first we're going to, well, I guess give a little overview. I want to talk about some of the statewide races and then I want to come local to talk about Pierce County and local legislative um, races. And of course that 10th congressional district race, that's kind of a hot ticket. Um, But let's start first with our statewide races and start, first of all, with governor. We have Jay Inslee, the incumbent, who's done two terms as governor versus Lauren Culp. Uh, Mr. Culp is a um, law enforcement officer, I think sheriff, although I I don't think he's a county sheriff. I think it's just the city of Republic, Washington. I'm sorry. uh, Correct me, Alex. What is that? Police chief. Police chief. Okay, he is police chief for Republic, Washington. And um, that is an interesting race. So what do you guys think? I mean, I, I guess I'll say, I think everyone projects that Inslee is going to take this, especially with a large turnout. But um, I think the Culp race has, has raised some interesting ideas and shows us something interesting about Washington State. And let's start with you, Alex. What do you think about the governor race? So we also need to pause in, uh, in Washington State, the notion that high turnout represents a Democratic success isn't always true. So we saw okay. that record high turnout in the primary, and Republicans did very well in the primary. So in Washington State, because of sort of Seattle's economic impact on rural Washington, you have a lot of people who are low propensity voters who are actively harmed by Democratic Party policies. So these are individuals who, if they got motivated, would increase Republican turnout and increase Republican vote. So it's slightly different in our state than how a lot of people model this for other states. Mm-hmm. So, um, we are seeing, though, the very high turnout is coming from urban areas. So what mm-hmm. we need that to pick up in rural areas, and there could be uh, a good balance for Republicans there. So Culp is a different sort of candidate. You know, he doesn't have a college education. He's more of an everyman. Um, he has been less... Uh, I mean, there have been a variety of everyman candidates. Some people would call like Donald Trump sort of that sort of person, sort of tapping into this populism. Uh, Culp is not that person. Culp is not a Donald Trump person. He is a, a, kind of a more friendly, gracious person. They have some overlap in terms of Culp really questioning Inslee's uh, mask mandates and other things. So I think that creates kind of like a false impression that they might be exactly the same. It's not. You'll notice that the Inslee campaign promotes this false impression for obvious uh, political benefit. Um, so Culp did win the Republican primary in part by moving non-voters into voting in the primary election. And so a lot of his success over a more establishment candidate, Joshua Freed, was essentially moving new people in. And it had great success. And so he's really inspired a lot of loyalty and hard work uh, from his uh, uh, supporters. Uh, if you watch the gubernatorial debate, as I did, I arrived with some questions about, can Culp pull this off? Can Culp, can Culp be a competent governor? I didn't have that opinion until I watched the gubernatorial debate. And one thing that was evident there is that Culp just destroyed Inslee in the debate. And we all know that Jay Inslee is not the sharpest knife in the drawer, and that is one of the kinder phrases we can use to describe the governor. But in this instance, we saw Culp 
just out debating him on core questions about how to balance the state budget. I mean, these are things that the governor should have been hitting home runs on. And Culp was outperforming him significantly, offering much more rational positions on how to deal with what we expect to be a pretty big hole in the budget from the COVID crisis. So uh, in that moment, I was like, wow, I can vote for this guy without any concern. I can feel good about voting for him. Um, and I wasn't there until that moment. Uh, so we'll see. Inslee, of course, has a significant financial advantage, which I think is less and less important these days. I mean, a lot of folks, when we look back at, say, the presidential race of 2016, we forget that Hillary Clinton had more dark money, more party money, more campaign money. She outspent Donald Trump in every single metric and the dark money by a fantastically high amount. Um, and so money is becoming less important in this day and age where we have negative partisanship and this um, uh, sort of uh, very visceral decisions being made by people about who to vote for. So it is unlikely that there will be a big surprise for a cult, but uh, core mechanics are favoring him in a few different ways. Hmm. Well, Justin, what do you think about that? And what do you think about Inslee as a, as a candidate and a, maybe as a debater? You know, setting the viability of Jay Inslee aside, let's just talk about Lauren, Lauren Culp for a moment. Um, I think the, the most apt comparison in this case might be the uh, Ellen Craswell. Some of you might remember her. Um, I think the idea that he's going to get any more than 25 to 35% of the vote in a place like King County is, uh, in my opinion, it's, I have a bridge to sell you if you think that's going to be the case. Um, no, the, the bottom line, you know, when I look at the field of Republican candidates that ran for governor this year, uh, Alex mentioned Josh Freed. Uh, there were more, uh, was it Raul Garcia? Alex was another one. Um, Raul quite a guy. Yeah, I mean, I mean, quite a few candidates that I would have seen as more viable and, and Colt, kind of like Donald Trump, just kind of bulldoze over the rest of uh, his competitors. What, what I find interesting in that, though, is just we were talking about this before we started rolling the tape. The top two primary system just awards the two spots to the people who received the most votes. Now, in Culp's case, that was 17%, somewhere right around there. And, you know, when I look at that, I don't think that represents a significant majority of either Republican primary voters or the primary voting population as a whole. So to me, it's crazy that we can get this Trump Jr. sort of candidate running for uh, governor against Jay Inslee when he represented such a small overall percentage of the vote that was received. So I don't think he's viable. I think he's fringe even by today's GOP standards. Uh, I think the anti-mask thing that he goes off on, you know, these armed rallies that he's holding with a bunch of people with Confederate flags and with these, I, I watched the new Borat movie last night, by the way, and he was featured prominently in it. So good job, GOP, um, real mainstream there. Um, but yeah, no, I don't think this is going to be a much of a, a race at all. I think he, he cracks maybe 40, 42% would be my, my guess in the general. You know what, what I think is interesting about this race is, and I would agree, I don't think that he's likely to um, be successful in it. I don't think he expects to be successful in it, but what I see, you know, out and about, especially once you're outside of city centers is, is a lot of signs and not just a lot of signs on roadways, but signs in people's yards and on their fences and I don't necessarily think it's because they think that Lauren Culp is just the most fantastic guy, but somehow he's personified the anti-movement and it's the, you know, anti, uh, anti-democratic party, anti-people who've been in charge in, in this state for a long, long time, um, has a strong component of, you know, we want to protect our gun rights. Um, we are very concerned about the state's policies, uh, things like that. And I, I do think that uh, at some point we will need to have maybe hopefully after this election, we need at some point to have some discussion about um, is this OK, the increasing divide both. I mean, we have enormous divides in terms of haves and have nots economically, but we have a real strong divide in terms of how people think things should work. And I don't know if we bridge that, but it just feels like um, that race is kind of showcasing that a lot of people feel very comfortable um, saying, I don't want to have anything to do with this other group that's been in power for so long and what that means long-term for us. In today's politics, you can win a statewide race by getting 30% out of King County. So we're seeing in the old days, when I first started in campaigns and elections, 
Um, our goal was always to get 44% out of King County for a statewide Republican campaign. Because of increase in population shifts and demographics and change in voter padding, you can now win with 33% out of King County and maybe 30%. So uh, for instance, Kim Wyman, the Republican who's probably the most, the strongest Republican statewide, she will get a modest vote out of King County and make up for it in the rest of the state, most importantly from her own home county of Thurston, where she flips about half the Democratic voters. Mm -hmm. I think the problem with that assumption, though, is that Lauren Culp uh, represents the same tradition of politics that Kim Wyman does, or previous GOP governor nominees like Rob McKenna, uh, who who got quite a few liberal votes that I'm aware of. So, I mean, again, I think I think Culp is an open Donald Trump admirer and supporter, and they both kind of play off this whole idea of uh, white grievance and frustration with uh, with the status quo, which maybe there are some valid things that they bring up. But overall, I think it's they're they're basing their campaigns primarily on owning the libs, if you will. And if you ask me, that's not good governance. That's not something that reflects the majority of the population in either party. So I think I think this is just a reflection of the times that we're living in and uh, unfortunate results of the primaries we saw. So we see I mean, let's let's um, be a little bit more equitable here. So in the debate, that wasn't Culp's position. He did not manifest that story that Justin just described. Instead, we saw Inslee manifesting liberal anti-Trump grievance. Inslee uses his Twitter feed to not address state issues, but to constantly criticize President Trump. That's done nothing to fix the problem at the Department of Corrections. That's done nothing to fix the department, uh, the problem at employment security. That's done nothing to address this rural economic problem that his policies have largely created. It's done nothing to fix climate change, right? So even the governor's priorities are not served by him getting angrier and meaner and bringing this sort of uh, federal style politics to Olympia. This is something we predicted during the McKenna campaign that we had a fantastic bipartisan, centrist, reasonable governor in Chris Bregoire. And that was going to go away with Jay Inslee got elected. And he did. And that's exactly what he's done. He's brought this very divisive style of politics to Washington that we had generally not had to suffer from. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that I really agree with that, but I certainly agree that, um, you know, unfortunately, that sort of the Trump um, administration has set the agenda in a lot of ways. And and that, you know, all of our, in, you can't really ignore it, but reacting to it, you're right, does take your um, emphasis away from other things. But let's move on. Let's talk about Secretary of State. And Justin, I'm going to start with you. We have Kim Wyman, who's been there for, um, an, it's been there for at least two terms, so I think she's going for her third term as well. I'll say I think she's done a good job, a really good job. Um, but we also have Gail uh, Tarleton, who is running against her, and Gail is uh, also an outstanding candidate. I, um, you know, had a couple of things um, that I worked with her on very lightly when she was at the legislature, and she is a highly intelligent, uh, very organized, and thoughtful person. So I think. I mean, this, um, the best thing I can say about, about this race is I'm really comfortable with whoever um, comes out of it. And I'll share with you guys who I voted for at the end. But um, Justin, you start out. Tell us a little bit about the what the Democrats are looking at and um, and what you think about the Secretary of State race. Yeah, this race is interesting because I think uh, obviously with the COVID pandemic, it's been a lot of discussion at the national level about mail-in voting. Uh, Donald Trump likes to go off on electoral fraud, which you know, there's not really any evidence for it, but he loves to use that as a talking point. Uh, Republicans further down the ballot within the party will also use the same talking point. So uh, you've kind of got this perfect storm right now of COVID and the need to not necessarily have people gather in polls, plus the fact that Washington hasn't voted at polls for, I forget the exact year we stopped doing it. But, um, you know, if you ask me, this, this race is really interesting because uh, that is the heart of it. And Washington under Wyman, uh, we've generally had a pretty good system. In fact, we're often held up as a as a model. I was listening to, uh, I think it was a Mark Maron podcast recently, um, and he actually interviewed Stacey Abrams, who you know ran for governor last year, and she actually talked about some of the things that Washington State does really well compared to other states. And I do have to give credit where credit is due. We have that in Washington. However, I would say um, there's still fundamentally concerns about the fact that Kim Wyman, despite us having uh, what I would say is a model electoral system, she she is in the party that openly says at this point, 
one of the ways they get ahead is through court challenges, through ensuring that fewer people actually do get access to the ballot, uh, and that that goes about elections in these kinds of paths. So there was, I think it was a ProPublica story that came out recently about uh, Wyman's membership in some pretty pretty far-right secretaries of state groups that are run by different conservative Republicans. She regularly meets with them, and I think there's valid reason to be concerned about that. So I do think as a candidate, she is very formidable. Uh, she does win a lot of uh, bipartisan support. Um, but I think, I think at this point, we are asking the question, do we want a Republican to control elections when we know this is what they're doing at the national level? So uh, I think it'll be interesting to see who pulls that one off. I think Tarleton is running a good race. Uh, I do think, again, to Wyman's credit, there are some things that she's done well. Uh, just for me, I, I'm not comfortable at this point uh, with the National Republican Party having say in controlling how our state-run elections are going. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alex, what do you think about this race? Well, thank goodness what Justin just said is almost insane. So I, I love the guy, but let's just uh, break that down. Kim Wyman's role this year has been to refute that national Republican narrative. She has repeatedly been the go-to source in the entire country to point out that male voting is safe and secure. So if she were part of this uh, right-wing cabal, she would not be doing that. So good news for us in Washington State. Justin's analysis is uh, problematic at best. So second, uh, we know that um, Gail Tarleton has no election experience. She is sometimes aggressively partisan. I met her at a gay rights organization with a group of gay Democrats there who brought me there to this banquet. They introduced me to her. And when she found out I was a Republican, she refused to speak to me and recoiled. And here I am an advocate for marriage equality at a marriage equality event where my role in promoting marriage equality was extraordinarily helpful. She couldn't even be polite to me. She is an extreme partisan from my personal experience. So we also know that there is a vast amount of dark money being spent to promote her campaign in significant violation of state law. So Kim Wyman fighting with the national narrative from the groups that Justin doesn't like, defending our local prerogatives, Gail Tarleton taking unethical, illegal, dark money. Who are you going to trust? She couldn't even shake the hand of a Republican. That's bizarre. So I think- can I, can I speak to that? You can, and then I want to talk a little bit about this dark money idea. We're, we're going we're gonna to participate better than both Biden and Trump did in that first debate. Let's just be clear mm-hmm. on that. Um, so if you want to talk about you know fringe, fringe partisan groups, let's talk about the fact that uh, this group that, that Wyman's been participating with is uh, part of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, so the gentleman that she's working with is Hans Van Speskowski, who is one of their attorneys. Forgive me if I butchered his name. Um, but that is not exactly what I would refer to as a moderate centrist kind of group. That is a very conservative far right group. And Politico also ran a story about dark money, since we're on that topic, uh, coming in to benefit Wyman at this point. So he can he can make that point if he wants to. But to make this argument that Wyman is free from the partisan influence, I think that's kind of a stretch, my friend. But we're seeing it manifest. I mean, as Evelyn herself noted, that at a nationwide level, when the stories are written about the safety of male voting, the person who is being used to refute Trump's criticism is Kim Wyman. And so again, in the ways in which, so this work with line from this guy from the Heritage Foundation, that's question, I don't even know what that means, right? But when in those areas that we can actually see it manifest, remember, in our state, Republicans advocated for male voting, Democrats largely opposed it until we persuaded them to adopt it. Right. So in Washington state, Republicans have been the reformer in terms of voter security, voter participation. Democrats have generally lagged. And then sometimes they take credit afterwards. Right. But that's okay because we got it done. Um, So the thought that we could vote for Gail Tarleton, a person who couldn't shake my hand and will magically become more fair minded than Kim Wyman is deeply problematic to me. Let me just add in, I looked up uh, Gail Tarleton's uh, PDC materials, and at least right now, there are not any independent expenditure. Well, there was a, a small, a $5,000 independent expenditure for her um, from Hughes votes, 
but there's not any indication of other independent expenditures. Now, that doesn't mean they're not happening, but I, I guess I would say if there is a dark money problem, I'm not aware of it, and I hope that some people file something with the PDC so that the PDC can look into it. That substantiates my claim. It's it's our belief that this outside money group is just intends to pay the fine, Evelyn, which you would be, you are well, uh, your former role as PDC director would tell you that some people just add that into their budget. This appears oh, yeah. to Democratic Secretary of State's organization has done. They've decided to violate state law and just whatever. They'll pay the fine later. I mean, well, I hope Sorry, Evelyn, go ahead. I was going to say, I just, I hope that if there is some evidence of that, I haven't seen it yet. I hope someone files something with the PDC so that the PDC or the Attorney General can look into it because that is something that we take pretty seriously. And for those listeners who don't really know what we're talking about, the dark money occurs when you have usually an out-of-state organization that is set up often as a, a, a not-for-profit entity, so you can't really see where the money's coming from. And then that entity comes in and starts buying ad time and doing um, independently financed advertising either for or against a candidate. And it can be very, very difficult to figure out where the money's coming from and who's actually behind these uh, advertisements. I would, love to know, I would love to know uh, why the NRA is putting money into Kim Wyman's race and why they did one of the independent expenditures in favor of Wyman, because that to me is not exactly a group that these days operates as a fair-minded, objective, moderate group. So um, just something that people should be asking, what exactly is the reason for this, this outside level of interest from a group like the NRA? Uh, why is the Heritage Foundation interested in Kim Wyman? So the just things are yeah. a little card that lists who they endorsed and they report a fraction of that. Just like Fuse, the fairly left or the or extremely left wing group, although I've always, you know, had a pretty good. Fuse a, well, Fuse is a statewide organization. NRA is a national organization. So they they serve and Fuse's whole goal is electing progressive left Democratic candidates. So I, I will confirm again, I looked up the PDC materials for Kim Wyman and she does have independent expenditures for her. And those are by uh $78,000 from the Republican State Leadership Committee, and then $2,000, about $2,000, $2,085 for her from the NRA Political Victory Fund. So I, yeah, she definitely, she has received independent uh, funding from the NRA, but I would say $2,000 in a statewide race. I, I don't even really know why they bothered. That's probably that, again, I repeat, they sent out a postcard to all their members and they apportion the value of sending this little tiny four by six pink postcard to their own membership. Most like the WA does stuff like that and they never declare that as an independent expenditure. They just call it member to member communication. And so mm -hmm. the NRA necessarily have to declare that. They just need a higher level of um, disclosure. Yeah, well, that may be, that may be. Um, so let me tell you my thoughts on Secretary of State. I actually think both candidates are very good. Um, my, I ended up voting for Wyman because I am concerned that this year, what happens after the election is potentially very important. I'm not too worried about our state, but I just figured if there is going to be some disarray or confusion after the election, I'd rather have everyone who's currently in the Secretary of State just focus on that rather than focus on getting out by January and finding new jobs and all of that. Because I, I can tell you, having been in um, state government positions for a long, long time, when you lose, um, pretty much your top management is non-functioning from that point forward because they're all either trying to stay on or they're looking for a new job and they're going to be replaced. So that was kind of my reason for, for my vote. And now your listeners are going to think, wow, these guys are really clash oriented. But we probably started with the most controversial one. After this is probably going to get more, a little more. Maybe, uh, it'll be, uh, well, maybe. We'll see. I don't know, because I think I'm going to skip to some of our Pierce County races next. But let's take a quick break and then we'll focus locally. This is Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, We Art Tacoma. Words mean things. That's what Pacific Lutheran University challenges me and you to think about in our everyday speech. When I speak to you or a guest over the podcast, the words I choose have impact, either positive or negative. Words have history, and when we choose to use them, we have to own their meaning 
and their effect on the people listening. My language, my choice. PLU is asking us to go deep on words like anti-racist or decolonize, and to think about what those words truly mean. Then, once you understand them, let's talk about how you can put words into action. What can you do to live up to the word anti-racist? How can you decolonize your entertainment, or even how you introduce yourself? These are big questions. To get ideas on how to answer them, and to find questions about other important words, visit plu.edu slash words mean things to learn more. My sincere thanks to Pacific Lutheran University for sponsoring Channel 253 and for doing exactly what universities should be doing right now with this campaign. Hi, we're back. Before we get back into arguing over the election, uh, I want to urge you, if you're not already a member of Channel 253, please consider becoming a member. You get access. Well, you know, we make these, these podcasts available to everyone. So you get access to what everyone gets access to, plus a very special podcast called Off the Record that Doug hosts, where you get to find out interesting inside information about podcast hosts. Um, plus, someday we will be gathering again to have Adult Civics Happy Hour and other events, and you'll get invitations and first information about that. So I urge you, help us continue to talk about local issues and keep them um, going strong with a, with a contribution or a membership in Channel 253. It's uh, $4 a month or $40 a year, well worth your consideration. Now, let's do one more statewide race. Let's do superintendent of public instruction, which which actually is always kind of a hotbed of controversy because um, parents and teachers and schools and issues. Um, but this year, kind of even more so, partly because in the two people running, Chris Reichdahl, who's the incumbent, and the challenger is Maya Espinosa, who is, I believe, still living in Pierce County. She's a local. It's, uh, I think, more controversial than ever before, partly because of Referendum 90 on um, setting certain statewide standards for sexual health education, and partly because of COVID and how the schools have uh, managed that or not managed that. There are a lot of frustrated parents out there, I think probably a lot of frustrated teachers too, and all of that may play into this campaign. So I'll start with you, Alex. What do you think about the Chris Reichdahl, Maya Espinosa race for superintendent of public instruction? I think you're right that this is an interesting race uh, for the reasons you enunciate. And But let's break down why it is interesting, because the Democrats passed a statewide sex education mandate, uh, eliminating the ability of local school districts to have as much to set their own curriculum. Um, but how they made that bill less controversial, and it was very controversial, is they invested the office of superintendent with significant power to create that curriculum. And although they referenced a variety of exemplars, and those exemplars make up a lot of the no campaign on 90 because they can be uh, notably graphic. The exemplars can be notably graphic, but they give to the superintendent of public instruction the right to sort of create these final rules and these final uh, decisions about what gets taught. And so I think at the time, Reichdahl essentially volunteered to have this turd put in his pocket, right? Uh, because it has made this election much more controversial um, and uh, has added to this COVID controversy, which I think you accurately described. So in this race, we have a person who was one of the most liberal members of the state legislature, Chris Reichdahl, um, who was elected with the support of teachers unions and other education unions, uh, again, with some outside, significant outside spending. Um, they defeated a local woman um, Aaron Jones, who was a little bit closer to the center, but still fairly well connected to the Democratic Party, but not the establishment and certainly not the um, union, uh, education union side of the Democratic Party, uh, but a pretty reasonable person, I think we can all agree. Um, and so Maya Spinoza is yet another woman of color uh, with an education background challenging uh, a very liberal white male uh, on the story. And Espinosa has, of course, um, criticized, been critical of the sex education vote. Um, and um, I've not seen a lot of criticism of the COVID opening, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if it were there. Um, and so, it, again, it tests out this notion of 
sort of um, the left's preference for identity politics. What's, what's more important is the notion of increasing the number of voices of women and women of color or maintaining authority with um, sort of special interest backed but progressive aligned white men. So what we're seeing is, I think, uh, given that choice, a lot of Democratic establishment figures are saying, oh, no, the white guy's fine as long as he's uh, very, very liberal. So uh, we'll see how that pencils out in terms of Espinosa's ability to pick up swing voters. Espinosa is very smart, very hardworking, very competent. And so she would be able to comp- just very graciously perform the job, I believe. Um, and so the real question is, is what would have then happen to those are uh, or the sex education mandate uh would it be, how would it be implemented by each of them differently? Again, we have to think that Reichdahl is going to probably go for a more expansive, um, I'm going to use the term graphic, but I don't want that to be totally freighted up here. I'm trying to be a bit fairer to Reichdahl, but there's an excellent chance that Reichdahl sex education curriculum would frighten more people, um, more parents. And I think that is probably bad for the state because right now there's, this was a, a, a solution looking for a problem. There was, to my knowledge, not a single school district in the state that didn't have some sort of evidence-based, health-based sex education system. Almost no children were not getting the education that this bill claims its job is to provide. Um, And so now, though, if this more controversial, centralized curriculum, it could get more people just to opt out of sex ed altogether. So there will probably be more parents just walking away from the system. And so in that regard, I think this uh, Olympia-based, Seattle-based approach is probably going to do, it's going to harm the objective that it itself set out to do. In that regard, Espinosa would probably save Olympia and Seattle from themselves by just creating a more, um, uh, a less controversial, more health-based curriculum. Mm. Well, I have to, before I turn to Justin, I just have to strongly disagree with your um, attempt of admirable by the way, but I think absolutely wrong to equate um, Maya Espinoza with Aaron Jones. Aaron Jones, career teacher, strong advocate in her community. Maya Espinoza, very little teaching experience at, I believe, at Catholic schools uh, only. And I think Maya has a strong future ahead of her. She is smart and she is very personable. I've met her a couple of times, um, but she is not ready to be superintendent of public instruction in any way. I was mostly just trying to compliment Erin because I like her a lot. So I wasn't yeah, trying. No, I think Erin Jones is wonderful. I, I was a, a strong, strong supporter of hers when she was running. And I don't, and I don't, I am, I am a little bit leery about pulling out the, you know, woman of color, you know, you want more women of color. Here's a woman of color. Therefore you should support her. Gee, you're supporting the white guy instead. That means, you know, really this whole idea of getting more women into positions of power is rather suspect. I just don't think that's there for this race. I don't think that's, that's, I don't think that's an honest talking point in this particular race. (laughs) Yes. So so Justin, tell me about uh, your perspective or the Dems perspective on this race. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's pretty pretty simple and straightforward. She's running on a Betsy DeVos-style platform. She's proposing a Washington Policy Center $2.5 billion cut uh, to public education in this state. Uh, I think Alex and I would both agree that the state constitution spelled out pretty plainly the chief duty of the state is education, right? It's one of the chief duties of the state. So for her to come on here and to say, I think her exact words were, COVID-19 presents the perfect opportunity uh, to put these new funding cuts into place. I think it's unconscionable. I think she's told lies numerous times, including one uh, that has now been called out by the Thurston County Superior Court. Um, she's not prepared for this. She claims that she is running a nonprofit that has not actually received the proper nonprofit status. Uh, she's telling what I, and and frankly, other people are telling these lies too. So it's not limited to her, uh, but because it's such a centerpiece of her campaign, it's worth it's worth noting here. Uh, the referendum 90 does not teach sex positions to children, doesn't teach fourth graders how to masturbate. Uh, these are the kinds of things that I've heard people say. It's just simply not true. Uh, and yet that is a, a key talking point of what she's going around saying. So I do think this race is interesting because uh, unlike the other state executive races, this one is officially listed as nonpartisan. So what research tends to suggest is that a lot of people, maybe even most voters, if they don't know enough about a race, they'll they'll go with their gut on the party label at some point or another. Uh, you know, maybe they'll vote for the Republican if they lean more to the right. 
or the Democratic Daily more to the left. In this particular case, neither candidate, even though they have their endorsements from the parties, they don't run with the R or the D next to their name. So the combined conservative, you know, anti-establishment vote, if you will, uh, in the primary was pretty substantial. I want to say it was around 55% to Reichdahl's 45. So I, you know, what, what that translates to in the general election kind of remains TBD. I think, uh, I think between COVID, between referendum 90, there's a lot on the ballot and I'm a parent with public kids in public school right now. So, you know, I've seen these examples of what sex education looks like. Um, and I've, I've just not seen anything to lend any credence whatsoever to this idea that this is graphic borderline pornographic, uh, sex education materials for children. It's just a straight up lie. I think, I think Maya is really a disappointing candidate in that sense. Actually, let me just add in a, a, a one uh, correction there. The Supreme Court just came out yesterday with the decision that overturned the, the Thurston High Superior Court case. And, Did they? Okay, I missed that. Yeah, well, and, you know, no one would know this, to be honest. I mean, it hasn't even been in the newspapers. Oh, Alex says I would, he would know it, but most non-election people would not know this. This is interesting. And so for those of you listening to this who don't know what the hell we're talking about, um, one of the things in Maya Espinoza's voter pamphlet statement referenced that um, this new um, sex, and I'll call it a sex health education, sex education program would teach sexual positions. And it traced that back. Apparently, some of the support reference material that is um, available um, in support of some of this, and I don't really understand, you know, which portions it are. Some of the support information, one of them does have some graphs, I assume pictures, line drawings of people having sex in certain sexual positions. I don't know the context of it, but that's there. And the Supreme Court said, hey, it's there, it exists. So having her say that is fair enough. Plus, since Reichdahl is a statewide um, known political candidate, he has to show actual malice. He can't just say he's been defamed by this. It's a higher standard. It's, it's just very telling. I want to clarify that I was accurate in my description. The bill references exemplars, the mm -hmm. sample curriculum. Yes. Um, you just described what the sample curricula is. Justin hasn't seen it. But to, to say that it is a lie that the bill references sometimes graphic materials, and it does, it doesn't include them in the bill, but it points at them like a link on the website and says, these are examples of things we can teach. And some of those examples, the dominant examples, were problematic, right? And so the critique is fairer than, um, than Justin says. That said, you'll notice that I was very careful to use the word exemplar because I'm trying to be fair to both sides here in this conversation. And Reichdahl's own defense of himself in this lawsuit was, hey, look, the bill doesn't say anything about this stuff. You know, wah, 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 you know, the uh, whatever you want to noise you want to make for something we can't see on radio, right, or a podcast. But, um, but it does reference the exemplars, and the exemplars are actually being reproduced on social media and Social media is pushing back on that. So they are sufficiently graphic that you cannot describe them. Television, TBW did have to put trigger warnings on the debate and not just on the stuff the critics of the bill were saying, but advocates of the bill were saying. So there is a more problematic content here uh, than perhaps some folks want to acknowledge. I should also note, uh, Maya Espinoza is another guest of the new Borat subsequent movie film. Uh, she was attending the far-right Proud Boy rally in Olympia that Sasha Baron Cohen uh, crashed and sang a racist song in and got people to sing along. It's just, it's funny to me that this is the crowd she chooses to associate with, but uh, her, her campaign signs were pretty visible. So I just keep coming back and asking why we would want to elect somebody that wants to cut so much money uh, from our public education budget and who has made a centerpiece of her campaign telling at best exaggerations or or stretches of the truth. So right. is, is this the proposal, this alleged cut to public education, right? So Correct. is this the thing Washington Policy Center says, hey, since we're all homeschooling, shouldn't parents get some of that money back? Is that it, what you're describing? It, it's still operating under the assumption that kids are going to go back to school at some point, Correct. We're all operating under that assumption. They're using this, they're using the current. He needs to be very careful to make sure I was treating Reichdahl fairly with this exemplar thing. 
I think you could have added a few more details that would have let people know what you're talking about. They're using this particular COVID crisis to implement a policy budget cut uh, that they would have liked to implement during non-COVID times too. So let's just call it what it is. Because they're doing education, they're educating people right now. Right? Well, let's, let's say this, okay. That's, that is a different story there. So on this, I think it's quite reasonable to assume that Maya Espinoza and the groups who would normally be supporting her are probably in favor of changing, reducing school funding in some manner. If it's due to the COVID crisis and the fact that parents are taking on a lot of the responsibility for monitoring the kids, maybe that's the reason for it for now. And I think we can reasonably say that Chris Reichdahl and the groups that support him tend to advocate for more funding for schools and point to the paramount duty clause in the Constitution as a basis for that. But let's move to Pierce County. I'm going to try something different since we, because we like to talk. But so I'm going to ask groups of things. So we're going to talk Pierce County Executive, Dammeyer versus Sequist. I'm going to leave Sheriff out of it for now. And the Pierce County Council races that are open. Figuera versus Mello, Hitchens versus Whalen, Rumbaugh versus Zeiger, and District 3 that I didn't look up that I can't remember the names of them running. Amy Kruver and I forget the other guy. Yeah, so. so It's going to be Kruver, but. <laughs> pick, pick, the, pick the Pierce County governing races you want to talk about, and we'll start with Justin. Uh, well, we could talk a little. We could talk a little bit more about uh, the candidates that purchased the endorsement of the Tacoma Weekly. Uh, Evelyn, I think you have a little experience with that. So, uh, I'll talk about I'll talk about uh, Ryan Mello's race just because okay. I I had the privilege of serving with Ryan Mello for seven months as a interim Tacoma City Council member, and it's fascinating to me. I, I've met Javier Figueroa once or twice, and friendly guy. He's mm-hmm. he's we had a good conversation about excuse me a couple things and. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed that he's been running on this time around, and to be clear, he's not going to win this race. That's the, I would argue that's the most deeply blue area of the Pierce County council. If you're going to, if you're going to go off of that, but he's run a few times, he's tried to make the argument that Ryan Mello is bringing Seattle politics, uh, to Pierce County, which, uh, if you know, Ryan at all, you know, that's kind of a crock of nonsense. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think Javier should have to answer for why he was trying to, purchase an endorsement from the Tacoma Weekly. So um, there's other issues there too. I th- I understand that he is also a supporter of the the uh, reject R90 movement. And uh, he's it's I find it fascinating. He's also not running as a Republican this time around and seems to want to avoid talking about either Donald Trump or Lauren Culp. Maybe he knows that's a liability to him, but by all by all appearances, he's running as a standard issue right leaning Republican in 2020. So Ryan's going to win that race. I'm guessing 68 to 70 percent. Um, so probably not much of a story there. But I would like to see Mr. Figueroa talk about why he tried to purchase an endorsement from a newspaper. He has. Uh, so the News Tribune ran a column on this or ran an article the other day, and he didn't return um, calls on that. So I don't think we're going to see much comment from him. There are complaints that the PDC is going to look at, and that'll all happen after the election. Um, any other Pierce County races you want to talk about, Justin? What about uh, six with Waylon and Hitchens? Yeah, I mean, I think that one's going to be really interesting. The uh, That's the kind of district that Donald Trump is projected to do really poorly in this time around. Um, it was a competitive race last time it was open for Pierce County Council, too. Linda Farmer, I think her she was defeated by Jason Whalen, but I think the margin of victory was a fewer than 100 votes. It really wasn't many. So they were... Uh, they had ballot chasing out uh, happening during that time. And uh, what I find interesting is that Whalen is another example of a Republican who is a friendly guy, tries to sound kind of moderate, but distances himself from the question of Lauren Culp and Donald Trump. Uh, but he'll use those tactics. You know, he's been putting out mail lately going around saying that Jenny Hitchin wants to defund the police. There have been two or three different mailers coming out stating as much. So he's trying to use those kinds of tactics on her while distancing himself from the candidates themselves, which I'm just really not sure that's a very good tactic or very smart tactic. I think she's well positioned to win and it would be a significant shift in the power balance overall of the Pierce County Council. Um, You know, if that happens, Derek Young likely becomes the county council chair. uh, And especially if Mello gets elected too, it would be a 
first time Democrats controlled that in a want to say 20 to 25 years. So mm-hmm. we've seen in Pierce County what happens when Republicans do run the council. You get people like Pam Roach and Jim McCune calling the shot, setting the legislative agenda. Uh, it, I think it's time for a change. And I think voters are ready to acknowledge that and get her elected. So I'm mm-hmm. excited to see what happens there. I do think she's going to take that seat. Okay. Alex, what do you think about the Pierce County races? Well, let's describe it at the greater level. So we know that Pierce County has a more count, competent county government than King County. We even know that our road repairs last five times longer than King County's road repairs. We know our budget balance is better. We know our police are better funded. We know Pierce County remains a more affordable, healthy place to live. This is largely because you have a county council that has been controlled by moderate Republicans who have ensured that the county hasn't become the radical, hyper-politicized uh, problem that you see in King County or Seattle. And so that's the real question in front of people is, do you want to have a radicalization of the Pierce County Council, a huge shift to the left, and what will create probably uh, deeply problematic things for the county? Now, I like Ryan Mello. I think of him as sort of a friendly acquaintance, right? But he is unusually partisan. And it, it stood out in the city council. He was one of the more aggressive And I do think it is fair to say he was taking more cues from Seattle than other members of our city council. Not uh, not as much as like Seattle is taking cues from Seattle, mind you, because I also get I like Ryan and I want to be fair to him here. But that sort of mentality is different than what we would normally find on our county council. And I think Mello and Rumba represent this sort of introduction of an angrier, more partisan version of the left that could radicalize things or move us towards Seattle. Uh, I'm an advisor to Hans's re-election campaign. I've been his advisor since his first year in the legislature. So as a, a matter of um, ethical disclosure, it's important to put that point out there. Um, but Hans has, uh, is one of them, he was a study determined he was the most centrist member of the Senate. And so I think that's an important story to tell because he was not the most centrist member of uh, the teenage Republicans back in the day. I thought we were uh, getting Zoom so bombs had this evolution that he himself is extremely proud of. And obviously it's in the direction of, you know, my value structure, which is why all of uh, the three of us are friends. Don't know you yet, Doug, but happy to make friends with you too. Um, And so I think that is essentially the choice before us. We have these people who are taking more cues from King County in Seattle, if not all cues. And then you have other people who are taking their cues from Pierce County. And Pierce County has been more competent and centrist. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's a fascinating and, and may I say, brilliant um, campaign strategy to paint the um, Democratic um, candidates as taking their cues from Seattle and, and that we don't want our Pierce County Council to become like the King County Council. I, d- I don't think it's, I wouldn't say that's what I see is likely to happen because the individuals in each of those races who are running, and I and I think Ryan is probably the most progressive in terms of um, social um, issues, certainly gay rights and also environmental issues. But I don't think, you know, um, Danny Hitchens, who's the teacher, and Sarah Rumbaugh, whose, you know, background is in uh, planning, has been a member of the Human Rights Commission. I, I, I think that to the extent that there's a fear of the Seattleization of Pierce County, I, I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. What I thought was interesting, though, is I think that, I think that at least polling would show or common feeling is that Hans Zeiger has uh, is the likely winner in that race. But Sarah Rumbaugh just got the endorsement from the News Tribune, which I was surprised by. So I think that race, we'll see if that's a close race or not. We'll see what happens in District 6. Um, and I agree with you about uh, Ryan Mello is likely to win in his contest with uh, Javier Figueroa. What about Sheriff? And that's a nonpartisan position. We have uh, Ed Troyer, longtime member of Pierce County um, Sheriff's Office and the and the public face of the office being the, you know, public information officer. Um, Cindy Fajardo, who's also been a 30 year member of Pierce County um, or maybe not as certainly more than 30 years in law enforcement and, and many, many years at Pierce County um, Sheriff's Office. And then we have a write-in campaign by Janice Bridges, who has a background in um, juvenile um, corrections issues and family law issues, who has worked for many years at the Pierce County Superior Court, uh, has a background as a social worker. Um, I think that Ed Troyer's likely to have the name recognition that'll put him over the top. Um, thoughts? Yeah. 
I mean, I mean, in a four-way primary, uh, Troyer had something like 58% of the vote. So mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty sizable lead to, uh, for Fajardo to overcome. She's also had some uh, kind of came up in the news a few times. I, I don't want to speak to them. I don't know all the details super well, but I think uh, it's, it's pretty likely that Ed Troyer is our next sheriff. What I do think is interesting is just the overall question of, uh, you know, can a write-in campaign be successful in a race like this? Um, you know, she came in, Janice Bridges came into the game kind of late, uh, but she's been making an interesting push. She's been going to community groups and uh, talking about some of the issues related to, you know, what happens when we send out with first responders, we send out maybe a mental health specialist or somebody that can help with a, a de-escalation case. You know, what does incarceration actually do in terms of deterring crime? Um, so she's got some interesting ideas that she's brought up. Uh, I, I'm not sure what the percentage of the vote's going to be, but yeah, in my mind, it's it's barely worth talking about. Troyer seems to be running away with this at this point, and I do think I do think in his position, whether you're on the right or the left, um, there are some things that Troyer should have to answer for. I think you know the killing here in Tacoma of Manny Ellis back in March. Uh, a lot of questions keep coming up with Tacoma Police Department and with Pierce County Sheriff and their involvement in that. Uh, I think there's fundamentally questions about racial and socioeconomic uh, disparities in terms of how law enforcement is handled and administered. And I, I hope he can address those adequately, but yeah, I'd be, I'd be surprised if, if he didn't win. What were the, what are the connections to the sheriff's department? Cause that wasn't, that was a Tacoma shooting, right? There, uh, Pierce County Sheriff was present that night. And there are questions about the stories being told between the two different groups. So okay. it's kind of ongoing. News Tribune's written about it. Seattle times has written about it. I believe okay. KNKX picked it up also. All right. I've mostly seen it as described as a city question. I think it is mostly a city question. Mostly I think. city, yes. But Pierce County Sheriff was involved. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, I think the only question is, uh, it does appear almost certain that Troyer will be sheriff. He's an affable guy. Uh, he's been around for a long time. My my prediction is, is essentially he'll continue to do the exact same job he did before, essentially be the spokesperson for the office. And he'll probably choose a very competent uh, deputy to kind of run the show the way Pastor run the show. So uh, Sheriff Pastor was more of an administrator. And um, classically, people usually do it the way um, Troyer will probably do it. Usually the sheriff is more of a front man with a, an administrative um, undersheriff, right? So in that regard, we're just sort of getting closer to what most counties usually do, but not all. Um, and uh, so it's probably going to be mostly status quo there. Okay. What about a uh, quick review? Do you see any flips coming in our legislative district races? So we've got pretty good challenges in the 26th over in the um, Gig Harbor area. Uh, 28th, hot race between uh, Twana Nobles and Steve Oban, and uh, some interesting races in the 30th. You think any changes coming? Alex, what do you think? No, it'll mostly be a status quo election. You notice in the 25th, <clears throat> the Democrats sort of mounted what they hoped would be a good challenge. And in fact, the Republican vote went up significantly. Everyone's in the high 50s there. So the 25th is off the table. That's a district Democrats used to think they were competitive in. Um, mm -hmm. The 28th is a district that does tend to be sort of, um, uh, has always classically been a battleground district. And I think that's the only real district we're going to see um, a question mark in. And so there is a very large, well-funded campaign uh, for both candidates on the 28th. Um, and so uh, it is very difficult to predict what will happen there. Um, so classically, Oban has tended to kind of pull it off at the end. Um, and we'll see if that happens again. Um, but... Uh, the 26th, I do not think is is as competitive as you do. I know that there is um, a lot of outside money coming to the district to support the Democrats again. So it creates the sense that there's a fight. But what you're really saying there is that the Democrats just have four to five times as much money as the Republicans. And so there are places that there aren't very competitive where Democrats can still fund them at a massive level mm. um, because of this huge fundraising advantage the Democrats have in our state. Mm. Yeah, Justin, what do you think? The race I'm watching most closely, closely, excuse me, is the Senate race on the 28th. So Oban and Nobles. Um, I think Tawana's running a really terrific campaign, and clearly uh, the Steve Oban camp is nervous because 
they are resorting to sending out mailers that they in which they darken her skin color, use all these kind of racist old school uh, scare tactics to try to get people to not vote for who they say is the you know scary black lady. So it's, it's unfortunate that the Republicans resort to these tactics, but those are the ones that they are. And another one that they've been running is uh, her parking tickets, trying to trying to somehow shame her into something that I'm pretty sure good chunk of the city has uh, had to deal with before. Um, it's really, really disappointing to see what they've been stooping to. Some of these outside PAC groups have been doing some of those ads in addition to the state uh, Republican groups and the campaign itself are running these ads against her. And so I think they wouldn't be doing that if they didn't see her as a real serious threat. Okay. Well, I think uh, Alex, you had some comments on that. And I will note that that mailer that was an issue that was before the uh, primary. I'm, I haven't seen anything like that. Um, similar, but we have seen those parking ads and some also some um, questions about um, bill pain and financial um, issues. But it's Alex, classist, what, what, it's misogynist, and it's racist, and that's the tactic that he feels he needs to resort to. Okay, so, Alex, uh, what were your? You know, Steve O'Ban is. I think he's a pretty good guy. In fact, I think he's a very good guy. So I think I've always found him to be one of the more gracious and reasonable members of the Senate. He has an excellent record of working on criminal justice reform. And on those topics that he's often been handed responsibility for, he's done a fantastic job of including people across the spectrum. And so he is much more of a collaborative decision maker than, um, than other people in the legislature. And so I admire him for that. You know, and I'm, I'm much more, I, I think I'm the closest to the center point of all three of us here. So I, I don't, uh, I do look at this and see uh, how do people work well with mem members of other political parties, right? And we don't know what the opponent's record is like on that. And so we might find that we take someone who has a record of bipartisanship and replace them with a person who is a bit more ideological. So I don't know that yet, but I suspect that's the case here. So Oban probably more able to bring people together on criminal justice reform matters because that's what his success has been. Um, the ability, the role of outside groups is always problematic. Um, and we've seen, um, for instance, up in a race that I'm helping on in Island County, the Democrats are attacking someone for wanting to treat, uh, create a water plant uh, and treat uh, seepage and stuff like that. So something that would literally improve water quality because a Republican did it suddenly becomes something you get attacked on, right? So this is the nature of outside groups. They find something they think uh, can be persuasive and they whack at it. You may remember in the 25th district because this uh, resulted in a, uh, a fairly significant admission from former representative Don Morrell, she authorized attacking her opponent for being a pro-choice woman because that woman was Republican and they tried to highlight that to Republicans. So if you really do support a woman's right to choose, you should probably not attack a 25-year-old woman for being pro-choice. This is the nature of this outside groups. Um, everyone gets a bit robust with this stuff. I always, always counsel people to be more fair-minded when they make these things because they're probably more effective. Part of the reason why Melanie Stamba defeated Don Morrell is Don Morrell, she actually authorized that one, just constantly showed this bitterness, this hyper-partisanship. So um, being nice is usually a better campaign strategy than doing weird stuff. And Evelyn, you and I had this conversation. You may remember Mark Lindquist's campaign. There was a mailing done there about three criminals who, uh, I don't remember the circumstances behind, they were convicted, but there where they selected three people of color and then darkened their skin in an effort uh, to unseat Mark Lindquist, right? And so- uh, that is a bizarre tactic that's been used uh, by not just um, center-right groups, but in that case, a more left-wing uh, campaign. Yeah. It's almost like we need public financing of elections. Imagine that. Just well, I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this. I mean, unfortunately, the public financing doesn't really, um, I mean, it, it helps a lot. Limiting the role of outside money at the least. Yeah. But, but I will say the outside money still comes in, so you just get even more you know, money spent on elections. Um, the interesting thing to me about the about the Oban and Nobles um, mailer is, frankly, had I been Steve Oban, I would have been furious at it too. And it was funded by the Senate Republicans. And I sort of what I what I thought was, well, I hope he talks to his friends in running that that pack because they didn't do him any favors. And because you're right, Alex, that kind of ad campaign really. Does I just don't think it's very effective at all. But 
you know, it gets tried every now and again. I actually Before have a, a text of right now of another mailer that went into mailboxes in the 28th today. This one also funded, it looks like, by the by the Senate Republicans talking about Tawana Nobles being sent to collections. I, I just, I'm curious why they think this is a good strategy or something that's going to help them. Mm, well, as the only person who designs direct mail, uh, let me give you an insight. So you do survey research and you ask people, how would you respond to this event? You tell them things you know about from your research into a person's background. Um, I don't know anything about this particular matter. So I haven't, um, I have my nose is so deep into my work. I haven't even paid attention to uh, Ms. Nobles's um, financial background, right? So I don't know anything about it. But they pro- it's a public record. They probably discovered it. And their, their thinking probably is, well, can't balance our own budget, can't balance the state budget, right? I mean, that's that would be the official explanation for why this is a valid critique, right? And up in the 10th district, they ask people, did you want a sewage plant put in your neighborhood? Everyone says no to that. But when you say it another way, like, gee, do you think we should take this existing sewage and make sure it becomes water that we can put in the Puget Sound, stop sewage from leaking into the Puget Sound and create like healthy actual fertilizer from this? People go, oh my gosh, that does sound good. You know, it all depends on how you frame that survey research at the front end, right? Um, And oftentimes getting that framing of those questions wrong is why you get these sort of like, um, uh, clunkers of a mail, right? So if you write the survey research in a way that's goofy and doesn't reflect people's actual experience, you think you're doing the right thing. And then people look at it and go, wow, you guys are just assholes. So a little bit of an insight on how that works or doesn't All work. Right. Well, we're pretty much out of time, but I'll give you guys each the opportunity for any final thoughts you have on election 2020. Justin, you start. Yeah. I mean, I think if I were to look at 2020 as a year, I think I could talk about COVID-19. I could talk about uh, the economy going down in flames. I could talk about any number of different things. Um, but, you know, to me, the the sliver of hope, if you will, uh, I am looking at these turnout stats coming in. Uh, so the Pierce County Auditor does post those every single day. And as of yesterday's ballot count, turnout for the county was 26.57, which uh, for historical context, the same point in time in the 2016 election, 11.27. So more than double the rate of turnout. So I'm really, really encouraged by that. Uh, I'm happy to see it. Uh, I think people are motivated to get out and vote Donald Trump and all of his minions and all of his uh, Republicans that have stayed silent when they know better. I think people are looking forward to getting in there and voting them out. So I'm excited for that. And with due respect to my friend, Mr. Hayes, who I do like and respect very much, uh, you know, it's it's been disappointing to see so many good Republicans keep their mouths shut in the face of so much cruelty, so much injustice, so much just frankly crazy shit that he says. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see what the turnout results look like when this is all said and done. Mm-hmm. So that's all for me. Alex, thanks, Justin. Alex, your final thoughts on election 2020? So we are, um, there's a significant pushback inside the Republican Party against Donald Trump. It just when you do it, you don't ever get really credit for it. So it is this the critique that people are not standing up enough that registers. And it is in part facilitated the mismanagement of our state and local governments. If the only thing you pay attention to is your dissatisfaction with Donald Trump, what you allow then is Jay Inslee to be the worst governor in the country, notably incompetent, notably unable to do his job, and no, and not an adequate level of accountability for Jay Inslee. And this phenomena propagates across the whole of our political structure. Those people that have the most influence in your lives, your state government and your local government, they're not being subjected to enough questions and enough scrutiny and enough evaluation of their work product because we get lost in the, the torrent of nonsense and uh, grotesquerie that is the federal government. So my advice is do your local research Focus on those people who have the biggest impact on your lives. Um, Give people credit for being better than the federal system. And this credit, by the way, can go to both Republicans, especially Republicans, and oftentimes to our Democrat friends too. So at the local level, people are nicer, better, and more competent. Um, And that is something very important to remember. All right. I think with those closing thoughts, I I just have to say, I don't think that Jay Inslee is the worst governor in in the country. And I'm, but I will say this, these last four years, I have been so, so thankful. I live in the state of Washington 
And I've been so, so thankful that I live in Pierce County and in the city of Tacoma because all of our systems, and I don't always agree with them, but I can usually figure out what's happening. And that's huge. And I also feel like with a little bit of effort, I can usually make my point of view known and make contact with my representatives. And that's really huge too. So on that note, here's the final message. If you have not yet voted, do so. Use a Dropbox if you can. You can track your vote and make sure it has been properly received and logged. If you need help with any of that, you can find information on Pierce County Auditor's website. But remember, vote. That is all that matters right now. Just vote. Thank you both, Justin, Alex. I really, really appreciate you both. Um, thank you, Doug, as always, for coordinating another episode. If anyone listening has ideas for future episodes, let me know. You can email me, truetacoma at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter at true underscore Tacoma. And we will post this episode as soon as we can. Thank you. Did you know Channel 253 is, is the member Channel supported? Podcast I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership. Talk and man. Flounders Thank B you. Team, Citizen Tacoma, what say you, and give me the mic. This is Channel 253.